Thank you, worship team. Take your Bibles, if you would. We'll start in Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22. Now, listen, I'm not very good at math. Uh, that's a lie. I'm very good at math. Uh, but uh, I'm not good at I'm not good at college football math. But I think that if your team beats the number two team, that means we're better than number two, and at least should be co-equal with number one. So I'm going to look at the ratings later on today, and I think, oh, now listen, for those of you that are diehard Buckeye fans, let's, can we face some reality? Purdue shows up once a year to play football, and that was yesterday. So you got nothing to worry about. I fully expect to drop the Buckeye game by 50 points, okay? I fully expect that. Okay, enough about that nonsense, uh, but everybody was talking about it this morning, so I'll just, I had to. Okay, uh, take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 22. Somebody can explain college football math to me after the service. Uh, when I, if those of you that know me know that I come from the corporate world. Before I was a, a um, uh, pastor, I was in uh, industry. And in industry, we would often have meetings. Uh, yes, mind-numbing, long, boring meetings. And every once in a while, we would have these meetings. We would have these meetings to discuss the company's mission. We would talk about our mission statement. Sometimes I got involved in some meetings where we were recrafting the company's mission statement. Now, sometimes I got to admit, I'm just going to be honest, sometimes those meetings were very exciting and good. And other times, those meetings were like the epic torture event of my week, right? And here's the difference. I could, I could actually identify the difference. If I was working for a company at the time where, as we talked about the mission of the company, I knew that I, I watched the leadership of the company, and they were totally bought into the mission, totally bought in. The things that they did, the things that they saw, the, the practices that they made of their week-to-week work routine buttressed, reinforced, and pushed forward the company towards that goal of achieving the mission, which for a company is typically something like this. Uh, we're going to make money for the stockholders, and we're going to treat our employees really well. We're going to put out a quality product. Some combination of those three things is in pretty much every mission statement, right? Uh, now, the meetings that I had about the mission that made the eyes roll so far back in the back of my head that people thought that I had been possessed by some sort of demon was the meetings where uh, some sort of a corporate leadership type in a suit and tie would get up and they would be presenting all these things. And we all knew, everybody in the room knew that this guy, this man, this woman, they didn't believe what they were saying. And that was evident because they, were, they kept doing this the whole time that they were in this thing because they had a tea time at two o'clock. And, and so we knew what their mission was. Their mission was to get out of here, to do the bare minimum that I could to make sure that I foist the company's mission and to put the responsibility for accomplishing that mission on all these other people in the room. And then I am gonna get out of here and I am gonna go spend my time in, in leisure and pleasure at a very fancy golf course, and probably capped that off with a nice steak dinner at the end of the day. We knew what their mission was. And so when we would have these meetings, we were like, yeah, right. You don't believe anything that you're saying. Well, 
I don't know if you know this or not, but the church of Jesus Christ has a mission. We have been given clearly in God's word, by Jesus himself, by the way, a very clear, concise mission. And I know this is kind of like 101 type stuff, but we're going through this series on stewardship. And so we got to start kind of at the beginning. And the beginning is, why does the church even exist? What are we here for? Like, what is our mission on the earth? So I'm going to try to make this exciting for those of you that already know the answer to this question, but for those of you that don't, for those of you that think that Christianity is just a bunch of people coming together and uh, 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 talking about all the rules that we have to live by and then tearing each other apart behind the scenes, uh, maybe this will come as a revelation for you, right? And by the way, that's not what we're here to do, and, and may it never be. The big question that we're going to wrestle with today is this. What mission has Jesus given us as his followers, and how do we practically carry that mission out? What mission has Jesus given his followers, and how do we practically carry that mission out? So what we're going to be looking at today is three different sections of Scripture that kind of lay this out. The first one is, and the first two are called great, and then the the last one we'll get into, but the first two are, are called great. The first is the great commandment the great commandment, which is found in Matthew 22. By the way, all three of these things are words from Jesus himself, right? These are, these are statements from our risen Savior himself. He wasn't risen at the time that he made the first two, but he was on the third one. But the one that died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, these are what he said. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer. Now, don't, don't think of somebody who's very gifted in the study of like uh, the laws of the United States of America or Ohio or even Delaware County. Think of somebody who's very uh, astute in understanding the Old Testament law of Moses, okay? That's what we're talking about here. Somebody who's a theologian of the Old Testament. One of them, a lawyer, asked him to asked him a question to test him. I love how Matthew inserts the motive, okay? He's testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Capital L in my Bible, capital L law, that refers to the Old Testament law, otherwise known as the law of Moses. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay. One of the things I love about Jesus is his ability to summarize very succinctly what something means. And here, Jesus takes the entirety of of his word, the entire Bible, and summarizes it in two statements. Love God, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, love God with everything that you've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you can understand that, if you can wrap your mind around those concepts, you get it, okay? That everything else will fall out from there. So if you're struggling with a passage of scripture and and you don't quite understand what what it means, filter it through that or take it through that filter. Well, how does this How does this passage of scripture help me to love God with everything that I've got? How does it help me to love my neighbor as myself? That might trigger a better understanding of that passage. So we are to love God. 
We are to love God. God, the creator of the universe, God, the one who is all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. How do we love God? Well, we love God by getting to know him. Now, I said this before, and I'm just, this is maybe a little bit of a refresher. God has, in his grace, given us two primary tools to understand life. You understand that, right? Two primary tools. One is our brains. I know what you're thinking, Scott. You're not very gifted with that one tool, but I, that's the one tool that he's given us, our brains. And the other is his word. Now think about that for a minute. As we look around God's created universe, we use a tool that we call the scientific method to observe things, to test things, to see if things are repeatable, to understand the laws of physics that God has placed over us, right? To, to, has, to, has woven into his universe. We can use our brains to understand many things. Now, a good scientist will admit to you that there are many things about the universe that we still have yet to discover. Vast areas of studies where we are, in essence, very ignorant about God's created universe. But we use our brains to, to learn about God's created universe. But there's some things about God, for example, that we can't learn through observation. And for that, he's given us his word. His word that tells us all about him, who he is, what he's like, what he finds to be good and what he finds to be evil. Uh, he tells us the story of how we were created and why we are here. Uh, God uh, is awesome. And so those are the two, two, two tools that God has given us. Now, let's not be confused. And any good philosopher that's worth his salt will tell you that any human being that tries to understand the whole of life using just our brains is going to fall short. There's going to be vast areas of life that are unexplainable without God's word. And those on the other side that say we can use, we can figure out all of life with just God's word, we don't need our brains, they will fall short as well. Because last I checked, and you know, maybe it's in Maccabees, one of those Bibles, books we don't have in our Bibles, but I don't know how to change my oil in my car from reading God's word. That requires my brain to figure that out. Actually, other people figured that out and then told me, and I just store that information in my brain, right? So we need to learn to love God, and we do that by understanding him the way he's revealed himself to us through his word. We are also to love others. We are also to love others. And, and in the, if we want to think about others in two different categories, we can think about others in terms of other Christians and other people who are not Christians, right? We can think about people in at least two categories. There may be others that you want to add into there. But for, for other believers, we are to practice fellowship. Fellowship. I put three blanks in your outline. I'll fill those in in due time. But, but in order to fill those in, let's go over to Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, where we read this. The writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir one another, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet each other as, the, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In this text, I believe we have a good definition, a good working definition of the word fellowship, 
Let me break it down for you very quickly. First is it says, let us consider how to stir one another up to good love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. That word, not, that phrase, not neglecting to meet together, the verbs in there indicate continuing action, right? We, we don't just meet together once. We meet together on an ongoing basis. And so what we first need, this is your fill in the blanks, in order to have fellowship, we need time. It takes time to get to know one another. Uh, anybody who says that they can uh, meet someone and in the first five minutes, you might get a first impression, but to really know that person, anybody who says they really know that person after five minutes of meeting them is, is not telling you the truth. Sometimes a person will present themselves a certain way, but over time you'll get to know that person, their actions, their attitudes, whatever, and, and that's what it requires to have true fellowship. It, it requires time. But it also says in the text that we are to meet together. Meet together. I'm, I'm always struck about how God designed us, human beings, in such a way that we have facial expressions, we have mannerisms, we have tone of voice, and the actual words that are coming out of our mouth. We're, we're communicating on at least four levels all the time. And so if you're in a uh, marriage relationship and your spouse is, if you're talking to your spouse and you're asking them, how are you doing? And they say to you, I'm doing fine. And the word fine, that means they're doing fine. And they, their mannerisms don't say anything negative about that. And their facial expression doesn't say anything about that. It could be just as simple as a husband recognizing that when his wife just said fine, her tone of voice indicated something different. That ever happened to you? Happens to me all the time. I'm fine. Oh, I know that you're not fine. And so in order for us to have fellowship, we need not just time, but we need proximity. We need to meet together. Time, proximity. And then the third thing in this is, is, is in the first verse here, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That word stir up one another, that phrase in English, Stir up one another in the Greek is the word that could be translated provoke. Provoke. Meaning that every once in a while, we need to get in each other's face and say, uh, you know, you're in sin or you need to reconsider this or that or, or I love you and I love you enough to tell you the truth in love and here's what it is. And so we need uh, to love others, and that looks like fellowship, and fellowship, love other, loving other Christians looks like fellowship, and fellowship is time, proximity, and challenge. This has been an interesting time for the church as the pandemic has, has gone on. I, I heard Gordon mention that uh, the, the Yannicks down in Peru, the churches there still cannot meet in person, and I can only imagine the suffering that's going on because there's no fellowship. Um, I know there's been a pandemic on and, and we have tried to draw the, strike the balance, the, the elders and I have tried to strike the balance between, uh, you know, reasonable obedience to what the government is wanting us to do, but also getting back to true in-person fellowship as quickly as possible. And, um, you know, everybody can have a difference of opinion on that, but I think we did okay. Uh, because we understand the value of meeting in person. I, I had a lunch this past week with a group of people that are um, 
down in Columbus, a group of people who are trying to plant churches in this area. And they laid out their, the distinctives of their ministry, of the, church, of the type of churches that they're trying to plant. And I don't know if you're aware of this. I don't know how much inside baseball you know about other churches, but there are certain denominations that are trying to put up churches that have uh, a campus where when it's time for the pastor to speak, a screen comes down and you get the pastor live via satellite from another campus. Are you familiar with this? Yeah. Uh, this particular group of church planters said, we're not doing that. Other churches can do that and we're not throwing rocks at them, but we are committed to in-person preaching. And, and so uh, there's a, there they were talking about proximity, right? You, you want your, the, the person that's delivering the word of God uh, to be close. So there's that aspect of it. And then when we talk about loving others that are unbelievers, loving others that don't yet know Jesus as their savior, then we gotta talk about it in terms of outreach, outreach. Take your Bible and turn over to Luke chapter uh, 10 for just a minute. Uh, Luke chapter 10. And um, Jesus is getting ready to send out the 72 for ministry. And there's, some, there's just an interesting thing in here, that, uh, an interesting dynamic that I think helps us as Christians today. <clears throat> After this, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whenever you enter, first say, peace to you, or peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will, not, will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages." Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. What Jesus is essentially saying here is that as we go about our outreach, as we go about uh, going into meet with unbelievers, whether they be at your workplace, near where you live, maybe a neighbor, uh, your extended family, whatever, wherever we go where we have a place a potential to reach out with the message of Jesus Christ, we are to seek people of peace. And what I, what I take that to mean, my understanding of that is, is this, is that if you go to share the gospel with someone and they're receptive and they want to talk about spiritual things, praise the Lord, spend time, invest there. Invest with that person. 
If you go to a person and, and you strike up and bring God into the conversation, which is an amazing thing to do, by the way, just bring God into the conversation, and they say, look, I do not want to hear this. I do not want to hear about your God or salvation or my need of it. Stop. Okay, well, you're not, you're not ministering there to a person of peace. You can pray for that person. You can be kind to that person. Pray for that person that the Lord may open up their heart and mind in the future. So we are to love others. Now, if, in terms of what, what is love, I would encourage you to, as your homework, <laughs> you can take and read 1 Corinthians 13, which provides, I think, an excellent meditation on what love is. You're very familiar with that passage, even if you don't remember the reference. Uh, highlight it, circle it, look it up. So that's the great commandment. We are to love God with everything that we've got and love others. By the way, that takes... That is so healthy for us. We are a culture who can, if we're not careful, in an Instagram world, in a social media world, in the world that we can, we can become very focused on us. Right? We can become very focused on us. And what does God say? Focus your time, focus your energy on loving me and then on loving others. Do you know how therapeutic that is for your soul to get your attention off yourself? It's very good. The second great is the great commission. This is where the mission part comes in, right? The great commission. And again, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. And what does he say? He says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, within the English translation of the Bible world, there is some debate about the exact construction and meaning of the first part of this verse. Go, therefore. I think a bet, the best translation would be, as you are going, make disciples. Okay, that's, that's the sense in the Greek language, as you are going. If you say go, this is what it makes, I think what it makes our generation, our 2021 year American brains think. It, mean, it makes us think, you know, America is not a good place to spread the gospel, so let's go to Pakistan. Let's go to Africa. Let's go somewhere else. But I think what the verse is saying there, and, and certainly missions work is, is wonderful work uh, and, and to be commended, and we'll see in the book of Acts uh, when we get to it that, that it's a wonderful thing. But I think what, what this verse is saying is, as you are going, you have a family, you have a workplace, you have the place where you spend your leisure, your recreation time. You have a circle of friends that is unique in the congregation, is unique among God's people. So as you go into those different venues, make disciples. Make disciples. So we are to do that. We are to make disciples, not converts. Our goal as a church is not to have someone recite the sinner's prayer. That's not our primary goal. Do we get that? Our goal is to make disciples, to make people who are followers of Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer. 
It's not in the Bible, but it is a very helpful thing to help people understand what they're doing when they decide to trust Jesus as their Savior. But how are we to make disciples? Well, a couple of different ways. First of all, we are to baptize. That's the initiation into the community of faith, right? Now, I understand that when people come to Christ, they'll, they'll first trust Jesus as their Savior from sin, but, that's, but then later on, they'll get, you know, maybe soon after or later on, they'll get baptized and baptized, getting baptized, I always tell baptism candidates this, getting baptized is you telling the world, but mostly this congregation, I am coming out as publicly being a follower of Jesus Christ. You can now uh, expect that I will try to follow him in all of my ways and and you're free to speak the truth and love to me if you see that I'm not. It's kind of like a wedding is the initiation of marriage, right? When two people, two people get up in front of a group of people, witnesses, and basically they say, uh, I belong to her now. And she says, I, I belong to him now, and we're one. And then the community recognizes that, and, and that's the initiation of the marriage, so we are to baptize, but we are also to teach. We are also to teach. Teaching is the integration into the community of faith. Now, I understand. I, I, if, anything, if I'm anything in this life, I try to be a realist. And so I'm, t I'm here to tell you this morning that I recognize that there are churches, even in the city of Delaware, that have vastly different theological views on a whole host of, of things, not the least of which is social issues. I get it. I get it, but I want you to understand that in order for some of those churches to take the positions they do on the social issues that they do, they start at a completely different place than we do in trying to analyze God's word. Do you understand that, right? And here's what I mean. When, 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 a, when a particular issue comes up, our, our, here at Delaware Bible Church, our approach seems to be to get into God's word and, and to try to learn what he has said on any particular thing and, to, and then try to apply that, incorporate that into our lives. Whereas other churches seem to, and this is my observation and it may sound harsh to you and I'm not intending to be harsh, but I, I'm simply saying that my observation in life after 48 years has been that some churches tend to stick their finger up in the air and figure out which way the cultural winds are blowing and then try to twist the Bible to fit that direction. And I would submit to you that that's a very dangerous way to live. Why? Why? Well, to answer that question, the question why, why do we teach the word of God the way that we do? We have to answer the following question. And if you don't get anything else out of this message this morning, wrestle with me for just a minute on this particular question. Here's the question. Why do we teach followers of Jesus to observe all that he commanded? Let me rephrase it simpler. Why do we teach people to obey what God has said in the Bible? Why? Why do we teach people to obey what God has said in the Bible? Well, there's a few different theories out there. Here's one. One theory would be, and it wouldn't be wrong, but it would be incomplete. One theory would be because he's God and he said so. Now that's right, but it's incomplete. 
He is God. He did create us in all things, and he did say so. But to leave it at that is to draw an incomplete understanding of why God tells us what he does. Let me see if I can illustrate that uh, for just a minute. Um, as our children grow, when they're very young, and I'm talking about like five and under, uh, we can get away with as parents the whole, because I said so, clean your room. Why? Because I said so. We can get away with that pretty, pretty well. But if after they transition into that six to 12 or even older than that age range, they're gonna start asking, and, and you know, if you're a parent of a, of a child, maybe a young baby or whatever, and you haven't gotten to this stage, it's coming. But they're gonna ask you, why? And I've heard this before, clean your room. Well, why? Nobody's coming over. We don't have plans to have anybody into our house for the next two weeks. I'm quite comfortable in the pigsty that is my room. Why would I have to clean it? Now, if we were having guests over, I could understand. Well, maybe it's because the underwear that you're wearing is, you know, is, hasn't been washed in a week and there's no other underwear in your drawer. I don't know. It's in there somewhere. Just got to excavate it and then take it to the appropriate laundering facilities. Why? Why do we teach people to obey what God has said? In the culture that we live in right now, in the United States of America, I think a lot of the problems that we're facing as it regards to this whole pandemic and what's going on with our government entities right now is because we're, there are people, I think, of reasonable mind. I try to be a person of reasonable mind. There are mandates coming down from our government and, our, and, and the citizens, like people like me, are just raising our hand and saying, why? And can we all just agree, just from a human standpoint, that when our government says to us, because we're the government, and if you don't, we're going to make sure you lose your job. We're going to make sure to punish you in some way. We're the government. We said so. Do it, or there will be consequences. Can we just all admit, from a human nature standpoint, we don't like that. That doesn't build trust. That doesn't build a, a love and appreciation for the leadership that we have. Can we all just agree on that? In other words, the because I said so thing coming from, in other words, if the government's gonna mandate something, they ought to at least be able to articulate why in a way that's reasonable, logical. It turns out that God has given us a very good illustration in his word as to the relationship between Jesus and his church and also why we should perhaps obey him it's called marriage. It, God talks about the relationship between Christ and the church in terms of marriage. Now, I think that culturally, outside the church and even inside the church sometimes, the following statements can be ouchy. The following statements can be ouchy. Wives, you are to submit to your husbands. I did say the S word. Uh, underneath your chairs, if you reach up underneath your chairs, there's a rock, and you're free to take that rock and just whip it at me until I stop moving. Wives, submit to your husbands. Oh, here's even worse. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. From a cultural standpoint outside the church, those words are fighting words sometimes, and even inside the church, those words can be very ouchy. Why? Can we all admit that husbands are not perfect and wives are not perfect? 
We, we mess up often and, and, we, and sometimes we're not even trying to fulfill these God-given biblical roles in marriage. But that's the picture that God paints. A husband that's loving his wife sacrificially, that's putting her needs ahead of his own, that's deferring to her desires ahead of his own. And a wife that recognizes that and submits herself to his leadership and acts as his helper. That's the picture of marriage that God paints, and it's wonderful. And God says in his word that 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 dynamic gives us the language to help us understand Christ and the church. So while husbands are not perfect and wives are not perfect, Jesus is. Jesus is. And so where husbands fall short to love their wives as Christ loved the church, here's what we know for sure. Jesus, seeing our needs, seeing the sins in our lives, and seeing that we could do nothing to save ourselves from those sins, Jesus came down to this earth and became flesh, lived a perfect life, unstained by the cultural things going on, unstained by the sins happening all around him. He emerged from that completely free of sin, was put on trial for crimes that he did not commit, was tried unfairly, unjustly, and convicted and crucified, went through a torturous death. Why? For himself? He did that for you and I. He paid the price for our sin. He made a great sacrifice. So the question is, why do we teach people to obey what God has said in the Bible? One reason is, is because he's God and because he says so, but here's the deeper reason. Here's the more complete reason. We teach people to obey what God has said because we recognize that the same God who loves us so much and to the extent that he sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins is the same God who loves us enough to instruct us how to live according to what he says is good. And what's more, even on top of that, it's not just like he made this ultimate sacrifice, he designed us, he created us, and he told us how to live in such a way that is good. He actually takes up residence in our lives in the person of the Holy Spirit and activates his word by helping us to, by convicting us when we stray from his word and by giving us confidence when we're walking according to his word. It's incredible what we have, amen? And so just like I think any wife in this room would say that if my husband loved me, perfectly, that way, the way Christ loved the church, how easy would it be to submit to that leadership? Very easy, right? That we ought to say to ourselves as the church that because Jesus in his perfection went all the way, sacrificially loving us so much that he laid his own life down on the cross for our sins, that we say, we submit ourselves to you. The same Jesus who said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. What's a yoke in this context? If you haven't heard this before, I apologize. I don't have time to exegete it. But a yoke is a set of teachings that a rabbi would put on his students. Jesus says, take my teachings upon you and learn from me. 
for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my teachings are easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why do we teach people to obey Christ, the teachings of Jesus? Because he's God and because he said so, but because we also recognize how much he loves us and cares for us and that these teachings are the pathway to rest for our souls. They're not the pathway for ease and comfort, as some preachers would say, but they are the pathway of rest for our souls. Third thing. Sorry. Whoops. Third thing. Oh, okay. I got to slow down and push the right button here. There we go. Putting these things into practice putting these things into practice. One more flip over to Acts chapter one. We're gonna to get to Acts in a bit, but until then, uh, we'll just take a verse here. This is, this is Jesus talking. The context is he's resurrected from the dead. He's resurrected from the dead. He, is, uh, he has spent some time with his apostles and he is getting ready to ascend and go to heaven and sit at the right hand of God the Father. That's the context. And he says this, you will, be my, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's talk about that for just a minute. So we're putting these things into practice. Let's talk about power. The word power is mentioned 10 times in the book of Acts and sometimes that word is referring to miraculous works. I know we're not charismatic in this church, but in, in the book of Acts, and I'll explain that as we go through the book of Acts, but in the book of Acts, sometimes it is referring to miraculous, excuse me, miraculous signs. But other times in the book of Acts, it's referring to enablement for ministry. Enablement for ministry. My wife and daughter watched a movie recently, and I, I caught bits and pieces of it in passing, and uh the, the gist of the movie, I, get, I, I was there enough to get the gist. The gist of the movie was this, is there, was a, there were some teenagers, young people, who were uh, stricken with some sort of disease where they couldn't, they couldn't be around other people or touch them or have any kind of physical contact because they, would, they had compromised immune systems, they would get very sick, and that sickness may even end up in death. Very dangerous for them. You might know the movie, I don't remember what it's called or anything, but I do remember the gist of the movie. Now, if you're sitting in the seat, if you're sitting in the body of that person and you're looking out and you're seeing the world around you and you're seeing people that are normal, that are growing up in healthy bodies that, that can go outside and play and touch the grass and even touch dirt and, and, and you know, if you grow up on a farm, you touch worse than dirt and, and still live through it and be healthy and happy, just wash their hands, go on with life. You're watching them grow up and fall in love and get married um, and hug and kiss and do all the things that are wonderful to then produce children. You're sitting in the, the body of a person that's in that immunocompromised situation looking out at, at what's going on. And to you, what, what it looks like that normal people have is superpowers, powers that I don't have. 
And if a doctor could come along and, and administer a therapy, administer a medicine to, to make their, kick their immune systems into gear or get them going again or give them a whole new immune system so that they could go out, they would immediately feel like they've been empowered to go out and do what to them is magical things, to touch others, to touch the earth, to, to, to live. And I want to argue with you this morning or make the case that when we come to Christ, we are immediately transferred out of a situation where if we died in our sin, we would be separated from God forever in a place called hell, a place that the Bible refers to as weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And the moment that we trust Jesus and the forgiveness of sins is applied in our lives, we are transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son and we now, as believers, we live in a situation where the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our lives. God has promised to grow us and change us into the image of his son. And the reality on the ground for us as believers right now is that if, and I've said this before, if we live today, we have an opportunity for fruitful ministry. We may run into someone who is unsaved and be able to witness to them. We may run into someone who is saved and be able to have fellowship with them. So if we live today, fruitful ministry. If we die today, we be with the Lord for we are to be with the Lord forever. This is not an exhaustive study of the word power, but can I just argue with you for a minute? That's power. That is power. That releases us and empowers us to go out and freely minister for God knowing that if we live today, God might do something amazing in our lives and if we don't live today, will be with him and God will still do something amazing in our lives and taking us to be with him. So we are given power. We are to witness. We are to be witnesses. Brothers and sisters, we are to live differently than the world. Our goals, our priorities, the things that we do. There is a branch of Christianity and it's, this kind of happens on a person-by-person -person basis. There's a branch of Christianity in which a person sees themselves in their lives as their secular person and then the person that they are when Christianity comes up or when they go to church. And that's kind of two different things. Let's not be those people who compartmentalize our secular life from our Christian life. The Dutch, the Dutch theologians, Hans Ruckmacher and Abraham Kuyper, those guys saw that was going on and they said, no, no, no. Our Christian faith invades every aspect. It, it, it makes a difference in what we're like when we go to work, when we are with our spouse, when we are with our children, when we are out to play. It makes a difference in everything that we do. Christ invades every aspect of our lives. And in doing so, we will be witnesses. I can tell you, because it just so happened that this, I didn't plan this, but this week I got uh, some communications from two different people. As a, re, as, a, as a direct result of what God is doing in your lives, two people this week have trusted Jesus as their savior from sin. And, and that's just the two I know about because I got communications, right? Two people have been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Two people will no longer spend eternity separated from God, but will spend eternity with God. Two people have had the Holy Spirit take up residence in their lives and is now beginning the process of transforming them into Christ-likeness. 
You don't think what we're doing here makes a difference? You don't think your witness is powerful? It is. Make it as Christ-like as you can as you go about this world. The, the work that God has given us here is more than just building a building. The, the work that God has given us here is more than just, but, but in doing all of these things, we witness with our lives the resurrected Jesus until he returns. And it's powerful. I'm running out of time. The location, according to Acts 1.8, that we're supposed to do this is, uh, let's see, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, geographically speaking, Jerusalem was the local, that was the capital of, of Israel. Regionally, that would have been Judea and Samaria. Judea was the region right around Jerusalem, and then Samaria was the area just to the north. And to the ends of the earth, well, that makes sense. That's globally. And so we do that in various ways. I don't need to get into. Locally, I hope that we are witnesses in this community. And maybe even regionally from time to time, we are witnesses in this community, but we also work through our missions program to fund, to fuel, and to pray for missionaries who've gone to the ends of the earth. That's why we have a missions program so that we can fulfill Acts 1.8 to the best of our ability. We're careful who we partner with in those things. We make sure that they, are, uh, they have a good witness where they are so that we can get the word out about Jesus. All right, let me wrap this up and just say this. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually answer the question, then I'm gonna circle back to the practical things because the, 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 question, the answer has a lot of blanks in it. Here's the answer. The question is, why, what is the mission of the church and how do we practically accomplish it? It's this, the mission of God's people is to love him with all that we have, to love others, and to make followers of his son, Jesus. We carry out that mission by seeking ways to be witnesses of Jesus, to baptize, and to live and teach the way of Jesus. And that live is important. The way we live is a powerful witness. So let's talk about some practical things at Delaware Bible Church here real quick before I wrap this up. These are just practical realities I'm bringing up in context of this capital campaign. You know, like I said last week, a building is just a tool, but here's some practical things to consider. Uh, Aaron Hedges, Pastor Aaron, is, uh, uh, you know, last, at the end of last school year, we lost our Bible teacher. He took a different job. And so Pastor Aaron and Dan Miner, one of our elders, have been filling in, each one of them teaching two high school Bible classes. Well, it appears that, um, that this is a good fit for Pastor Aaron. And so uh, he is transitioning into uh, perhaps, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're praying and thinking and all these things, but it, it appears that he's gonna be transitioning into teaching all of the high school Bible next year. Dan's doing a great job. Uh, Dan has my daughter in class. I speak very highly of Dan. Uh, but, uh, but Dan is, is uh, wanting to retire again, and I don't blame him. Uh, he's, he serves us very well. Um, so we, we called him off the bench, and he, he's doing a great job. But, uh, but it looks like Pastor Aaron is going to be a good fit for, uh, for having fruit in the lives of these young people. And so uh, that means we're probably going to need a little bit more pastoral help on the church side. So we're probably going to be going into hiring mode again. And that means we're going to need a little bit more space for that person to work in that space that we don't have, right? Uh, our youth ministry is growing. I mentioned that last week. Uh, here's another data point that just happened this past week. Pastor Aaron, every year, takes a group of students 
to a conference called Strength to Stand. And uh, I consistently am amazed with how many kids he gets to go, how many students he gets to go on this trip, especially upperclassmen. Um, I, when I was a youth pastor, it seems like upperclassmen kind of fell off the, the planet a little bit as they got into their junior and senior year. But Pastor Aaron set another attendance record for Strength to Stand this year. And I think he's taking, is it over 40 you're taking students to Strength to Stand uh, and this is just good stuff, right? And this all requires uh, resources. And what a wonderful thing it would be if, if our youth ministry, which is growing, would have more space, uh, a dedicated space, not a dedicated space, but a, a nice space. That's one of the reasons that we'd like to enclose the courtyard, at least two-thirds of it, uh, enclose the courtyard so that we could have a space, a more intimate space for our youth group to meet, which the school could then use as well to minister. Now, listen, even Pastor Aaron would tell you this. Uh, he's going to continue to work with the youth, uh, even as he's doing the school teaching. But he, even he would tell you this. If Aaron, if Pastor Aaron taught a youth group on Wednesday night, which runs about an hour and a half, and if he taught Sunday school to our youth on Sunday morning, he'd get, what, two, two and a half hours of time with the students. And that's assuming that they come every Wednesday and every Sunday. But at Delaware Christian School, we have Bible classes, and, and in those Bible classes, uh, uh, right now, Dan Miner and Aaron Hedges have five hours a week with students to teach them the Bible, five hours a week. And because it's a school setting and because, because of the, uh, all the agreements that have been made, they can actually issue homework. <laughs> and, you know, listen, this is just me. This is my nerd self talking. Math is important. Reading, writing, that's all important. These are, these are great disciplines to have and tools that people need to have to navigate this world. But if we can have hours a week to immerse our young people, the next generation, in God's word, and we can do a good job of it, wow! And so uh, we... We have to, this is the question that I've been wrestling with, and I would invite you to wrestle with it as well as you think about whether the Lord would have you help us uh, to build this uh, extension onto our building. As I mentioned last week, we are in an area of the United States where interest in Christian schooling is high. We are in an area of the United States where um, uh, the hostility that's being experienced by Christian students in public schools is, is increasing a bit, and parents are looking for other options. And so um, Delaware Christian School is full right now. We have a few spots here and there, but they're, it's full right now, and we do have people on a waiting list. And so you have to, you have to wrestle with this question. Oh, by the way, we also have some land out back that we, that's available to build on. So, so wrestle with this question for yourself as I have been wrestling with it. If we are called by God, we know that the mission is clear. Make disciples, teach, baptize. If the mission is clear, what we're supposed to be doing, and we're supposed to be witnesses, and we live in an area of the United States, again, we're supposed to use our brain here. We live in an area of the United States where interest in Christian schooling is high. We live in an area where uh, uh, interest is increasing, population is increasing. We've got some land to build. Wouldn't it be good stewards of what God has gifted this particular church in this particular part of the world with to expand the number of families that we can serve through our Christian school? 
As I said last week, I understand that our Christian school attracts students from over 40 different, maybe just 40, 40 different churches. But we make no apologies about the fact that we teach the Bible the way we understand the Bible. That's what we do here. And so, again, these are just practical things to consider as we think about what is our role, Delaware Bible Church's role, in fulfilling the mission? How do we be a witness in this context, in this venue called Delaware, Ohio, where God has placed us? And this is the vision that the leadership of the church is laying out, is to, at this time, uh, pull our resources together and to build on. All right. By way of application, please pick up a Building for Future Generations brochure out in the foyer. Hopefully, you'll get the one with your name on it. Um, that would be ideal if you could get the one with your name on it so we don't have to track you down. Um, and then uh, also, uh, last week, we gave you a copy of a book, asked you to read chapters one and two for your life group meeting. For next week, please read chapters three and four. Um, I like to read, so those chapters aren't too daunting for me. Maybe they are for you, but uh, please try to, to review chapters three and four for next week. And then the last two are just what we've been talking about. Start praying about how God might use you in this project and ask all the questions that you would because I would love to answer them for you. Father, you've put us here for a reason. You've given us a mission. Um, the details of that mission really depends on the context in which we, we find ourselves. And so, Father, this is the vision that we, the church leadership, have laid out. And, and, and Father, I pray that whatever happens, that we would find unity as a church in our efforts. And so, Father, uh, I pray that if this is something that you want us to do, that you would bless it, make it fruitful, and, and, and build it up. And, uh, Father, if not, make that clear to us as well. But, Father, we, we desperately want to uh, carry out, be active at, be engaged in the mission that you've put us here to fulfill. And that is to make disciples of your son, Jesus Christ. Because of his love for us, because we want other people to experience his love and to feel that, that peace that only comes knowing that our sins are forgiven and our place with you is secure. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things, amen.